0: Galatians 6.16 contains the phrase the Israel of God which is viewed as the cornerstone of new Israel or true Israel doctrine. Today in the West, The gospel has become Gentile-centric. We've spiritualized the gospel of the kingdom. We've brought it into the present rather than a future hope, uh, flipping the Jewish apocalyptic gospel on its head, and we've replaced the Jews as the Israel of God. It's so arrogant. And I want to show that false doctrines like this, um, they arrive when we strip a verse or phrase from its context. Context is king if we grasp at the framework of the immediate passage of the verse um, and the wider context of the verse our questions would so often be answered we shouldn't be compelled to twist the framework because we stumble over a few words so um, we're going to look at this phrase but we're going to start with the broader context before focusing in on it Now, let me begin with how Paul positions this letter, which he's writing to uh, the churches of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So in setting the stage, people are preaching gospel messages contrary to the one they received. They are distorting the gospel. Paul is astonished. They are quickly deserting Christ. We're always going to differ um, doctrinally, but some doctrines swing so far from the gospel received that they end up with a different Christ. Paul then details his former life, his calling, the acceptance of his authority by the apostles in Jerusalem. And he underlines his God-given authority. He says that the gospel he received was not man's gospel, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So from that authority, here on out, he frames the letter as a defense of the true gospel and, a, and an exhortation to open our eyes to the counterfeits. Now, Paul's ministry was primarily to the Gentiles, and his main themes throughout the letter, painted on the canvas of the defense of the gospel, is the means of salvation. How Um, we should relate to the law of Moses and each other ethnically, particularly as Gentiles had joined the fold. And as a backdrop discussion, you have this bunch of Jewish believers who are saying that Gentiles should be circumcised. Now, what is taking place is not religious conversion per se, but ethnic conversion. For a Gentile to be uh, circumcised was to become ethnically Jewish. Uh, The Jewish Christians who were saying um, Christians uh, must be circumcised and I guess to some degree keep the law as well. We're not advocating religious proselytization and legalism as such, but ethnic conversion, um, as strange as that sounds, so that they could become heirs of Christ, which which was wrong, so Paul corrects them. And he brilliantly and masterfully expounds on the purpose of the law, describing it as the guardian, the schoolmaster, until Christ, the promised seed, came, on justification and how both Jews and Gentiles receive it on the same basis of faith, and uh, not to forget the promised spirit through faith. Indeed, we see in chapter 3 that the blessings promised to Abraham will be received by both Jews and Gentiles based upon faith and not works of the law. Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. He doesn't say, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles who are now spiritual Israel. No, in saying that Gentiles are new Jews... Uh, or, or the true Israel, you're making the same mistake that Paul is arguing against. If if you are a Gentile Christian, you are not Jewish or spiritually Jewish or part of spiritual Israel or required to be to inherit the kingdom. Gentiles remain Gentiles and Jews remain Jews. Being a spiritual child of Abraham, uh, being adopted into God's family, does not mean you are spiritually Jewish. and I've heard a renowned pastor say that. Paul makes the point uh, that promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And this seed or offspring is singular, who is Christ. So if you in baptism um, have put on Christ, whether uh, Jew, greek slave free male female then we are all one in christ jesus and if you are christ then you are abraham's offspring heirs according to promise nobody says now that we're spiritual heirs genders are disbanded um although today you Anyway, uh, it doesn't mean that your identity or ordained roles are scrapped. You are still male, female, Jew, Gentile. Um, A slave, by the way, is man's structuring, not God's chosen identity and role for you. The Jewish people are the administrators of the covenant, and any attempt to usurp them and replace them will only be met with the full force of God's word. In Galatians 4, Paul adopts an analogy from the lives of of Hagar and Sarah, and he reminds us that Hagar was a slave and Sarah a free woman. Ishmael was born from a human encounter, whereas Isaac was born through promise. Therefore we are born again through promise and not held captive under the law. In Galatians 5, Paul points out that if a Gentile accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. Therefore, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And I love this, so I'll keep reading. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Jewish followers of Jesus are circumcised as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant because they are the administrators of it. Gentiles are not required to be circumcised. The key is that to be saved and to receive the Abrahamic covenant covenantal blessings is a matter of faith in the one who will establish and deliver. So Paul says we are free from the law, but that does not mean that we abuse grace. He continues, for the whole law is is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. We are told to walk by the the spirit he says we are guided by the holy spirit not by the letter of the law he then lists uh, the works of the flesh and uh, the fruit of the spirit then the final chapter chapter 6 Following on from the previous chapter of the pull of the flesh and direction of the spirit, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in verse 2. We're told that whatever one sows, that he will also reap in verse 7. We're encouraged not to grow weary of doing good in verse 9. And then we enter the final section of the letter which houses the phrase, the Israel of God. The immediate context of this phrase is verse 11 to 18, the farewell and the conclusion of the letter. From uh, 11 to 15, he once again underlines um, his, his points that of, of outward expression versus inward expression, concluding in verse 15. "'For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation.'" The new creation is is not a new Israel made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, but that whether you're a Gentile or Jewish, it's about being born of promise, a new creation in Christ. And then the verse that contains the phrase, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And then the final two verses, which I'll read, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with, you, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The end. The context of verse 16 is the final blessing. And as for all, all who walk by this rule... Which rule? Well, uh, the truth of the previous verse in sync with the previous chapter in which we're told to uh, walk by the Spirit. And as for all who walk by this rule, and here comes the blessing, peace and mercy be upon them. Upon who? Upon the new creations, those who put their faith in Messiah Jesus and not in their own works, and upon the Israel of God. So he makes a distinction between upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, who is the Israel of God? The faithful and loyal Jews who put their faith, not in their own works or cuts to the flesh, but in Messiah and his works and his cuts to the flesh. It is the faithful remnant of ethnic Israel. The immediate context of the final passage is the warning and benediction. There's, There's no sign of an insertion of a drastic new theological framework. There's no replacement of Israel taking place here. It is a specific. specific blessing. G.W. Peterman says this, since some might have viewed Paul's sharp rebuke as attacking all Jewish believers, Paul added a specific blessing. This one was not just for those who accepted his teaching, but also for the Jewish believers who agreed with him. Think about the contextual logic for a moment. Paul just spent six chapters defending the one true gospel. Not the one true people, the one true gospel. Justification by grace through faith. Circumcision is great if you're Jewish, but for Gentiles, you you do not require it. Faith is the key. There's no mention of a redefinition of Israel. If he had set up a new doctrine about a so-called new Israel... Why would he throw in an ambiguous phrase in the conclusion of those six chapters? This is the conclusion, not a transition into another doctrine whereby he expounds another six chapters. Where is the exposition? We do not find it. You want us to believe that that Paul casually flips the entire Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic worldview on its head with a concluding phrase contrary to the entire letter. This is bad theology. Did he really wait until the 147th verse with just two verses to go before casually throwing in a phrase with completely different theology and then signs off with blessings? You know, it's, it's silly to suggest that Paul is so blasé and irresponsible. This is the guy who prides himself on explaining things. Israel is mentioned 73 times in the New Testament. It always means ethnic or national Israel. Are we to pretend that on this one occasion, which is not accompanied with an exposition to redefine Israel, that the church is now Israel? Proponents of this twisted gospel sometimes suggest that Israel in Romans 9.6 and Romans 11.26 refers to the churches as the spiritual Israel. Well, Call it three, if you like. Three occasions it's twisted, but the other 70 mean exactly what it's always meant. This is the definition of eisegesis. You're trying to force something, see something in the scriptures that is simply not there. Paul's whole theological framework is like a big arrow that points towards the day of the Lord. He is saying that those who put their faith in Jesus, not in their own works, those faithful remnant of Jews, are the Israel of God. They will make up the kingdom of Israel when Jesus returns. The Jews who put their faith not in Christ, but their own ethnicity, their outward expressions or their works of Torah will remain in the ground and will not partake of the Israeli kingdom of God. And of course, a few years later, Paul would write to the Romans explaining that the Gentiles are grafted in, not to replace Israel, but grafted into their Jewish apocalyptic narrative as faithful peoples alongside Israel. Paul is arguing that God is fulfilling the third promise to Abraham regarding Gentile citizenship, of the kingdom. In conclusion, if you told Paul that the Israel of God is now a true spiritual Israel, a new Israel, I think Paul would be astonished that you are so quickly deserting and you interject, ah, but not Jesus, we're not deserting Jesus. Oh, you just want to redefine his bride. If you preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. Oh, no, Steve, no, no, Steve. It's the same gospel just a just a redefinition of the bride a complete shift from the biblical worldview a reimagining of the apostolic hope uh, etc Paul does not care if you've got that twisted gospel from an angel, from N.T. Wright or some YouTube channel. Let him be accursed. Gorge on the scriptures, swallow them holistically. A verse a day will not keep the devil at bay. The antidote to bad theology is a childlike heart and a Berean mindset. God bless. I'm Stephen Buckley. To hear more, visit myking.com.